This morning, our focus takes uh, a sharp turn in another direction with a different angle on the nature of God. I asked you a few weeks ago, what is it about Jesus that surprises you about God? And so far, it seems like a lot of the answers have gone a certain way, and I've decided this week to make a sharp right turn. It's difficult because um, on the one hand, when, whenever you say what I want to say to you today, the wrong people hear it. Uh, and the right people don't. And while I have no particular people in mind, I just know that that tends to be the pattern when, when, the, when the word goes out. And so uh, I have tried to frame it in another way. This time I'm not really in my mind standing in front of you, talking at you. I am rather sitting amongst you, looking at a scene. The scene is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. How many of you uh, are naturally wired to love justice? May I see your hand? You're gonna love this scene. But you're gonna miss it if you read it wrong. If you read it as someone who is watching Jesus do something to somebody else, you're going to miss the power of this text. You're going to walk away with observations about what is right and wrong kinds of anger. Or if you look at what Jesus is doing to the temple, you're going to miss an important part of this story. You're going to see this as some kind of a statement about himself being the temple instead of the physical temple. And while that is probably true, you're going to miss what happened to me this week. Instead, I want you to see this story not as a disciple, but as a money changer. When you see yourself not as an innocent bystander watching Jesus do something to somebody else, but when you see him walking into the most holy site in your religion and headed straight at you, that changes this story. Yes? Some time ago, I read a story about the problem with circus bears. They had gone into the wild and they had found these wild animals and brought them into the circus and tamed them and taught them how to uh, ride on balls and follow every order that the ringleader and the clowns gave them. But while they had just thrilled the audiences, uh, they started to get old. And the question then arose, what do you do with an old circus bear who used to be in the wild, but now he's completely tamed? You brought him into the circus. You can't really release him back to the wild because he won't be able to live. He can't compete with the other wild animals. And yet he can't really do what you need him to do anymore. And yet... You can't just move them into your house with you. They, they're great entertainers, but they're horrible roommates. So what do we do 
with these once wild animals that have become tamed and after that, a little boring. And I thought of God. I wonder if we have not gone into the wild and brought him into the circus that contemporary religion has become and tamed him so that he answers only to the call of the ringleaders. He never does anything that the ringleaders can't explain or can't figure out because we have categories for him. And the moment he acts, we put him inside those walls. But the problem is that the older we get, he gets boring and he gets old. He'll never hurt us. That's the good news. But that means he cannot hurt our enemies. And that's the bad news. He's tame, neutralized, stripped of anything wild and unimaginable. What do we do with a God like that? Michael DeFott, who writes for the New York Times, he's a religion writer, has argued that America... Uh, is not a nation of unbelievers. They are a nation of bad believers. Uh, he says, our problem is not that we are atheists or unbelievers. Our problem is that we're heretics. 97% of us still believe in God. That has not changed for decades. What's changed is the God we believe in. And he has changed in the last 30 to 40 years in a couple of significant ways. One is he has shifted from a God of holiness to a God of love. Now, while the Bible says that the center of God's being is holy love, we've separated these two. And my generation emphasized his holiness and said almost nothing of his love. But the present generation has now returned the favor and said a lot about his love and very little about his holiness. If one listens to the sermons, to the songs, to the testimonies that come from contemporary religion today, they focus heavily on someone whose life is very fragile and tired, and they have found the love of God. What you hear is that God has accepted them, and he has empowered them, and they feel more worthy in his presence. That's a major shift. The other significant shift is that we have moved from a God who was primarily without and separate from us to a God who lives primarily within and is the same as us. We were tired of a God who was so far off and powerful that he could not be vulnerable. And so we needed a God who could walk into the storm and not just calm it. 
and that fit beautifully. And we were weary of a God who could change the narrative without living in the narrative. So we needed a God that just planted righteousness next to evil and let time discern the two. And we have changed to a God that originates from within. We weren't happy with one that was too far away. So wanting to make him more personable, we have deprived him of his own personality. It's as quiet as I thought it was going to be. Doggone it. Elizabeth Gilbert, in her heretic classic, Eat, Pray, and Love, <laughs> says, God exists exactly as you exist. God is as you are. Paul Coelho, in his book, The Alchemist, says, the soul of God is the very same soul as your soul. The purpose of life, says Gilbert, is not to be conformed to the image of somebody else, even Jesus. It is to recognize that his image is already in us and to just embrace it. The result is that the God we have found is more personable, but he's tame. We've made him loving, but he's no longer discerning. Can't tell when we're doing it right or when we're doing it wrong, or at least if he can tell, he never says anything because he doesn't want to offend us. Whether he is loved or not, he wants to be liked. And um, something in my soul tells me that this is a different God than the one that shows up. This one is kinder and gentler and more tolerant of other things. He's like a mother whose children have grown up and moved away. They've outgrown them. They'll come every Sunday and with songs and sermons, tell them that they love him, but they're old now. They're mature. They've got minds of their own. How did this happen? And how do we correct it? I think it happened when we got it wrong exactly where we had it right. We started with this idea of a God who was powerful but not vulnerable, and uh, he was strong, but he was not necessarily loving. He didn't necessarily know us. And, and then all of a sudden, we ran into the God of Jesus Christ. And this washed over us like a wave of mercy. Oh, how we needed this. It occurred to us that God really is like Jesus. And therefore, Jesus 
is the same as God. And that was powerful because it started to change all of these words that we used for God. Omnipotence no longer meant that you just stood at a distance. Omnipotence now could mean you stand in front of Pilate who taunts you and says not a word. Don't you know I have the power to take your life or to let you have it? And omnipotence looks at him without batting an eye and says you'd have no power at all were it not for my father. Here is a God who lives from within. The problem is that we completed the cycle and we said, if God is really like Jesus, then Jesus is God. Therefore, if Jesus is really like me, I must be Jesus. We overcorrected. Martin Luther tells about a drunken horse rider who, gathering what little skill is left, tries to mount a horse, and when he finally gets the foot in the stirrup, instead of everywhere else, he manages to pull himself up only to fall off on the other side. So he picks himself up and dusts himself off and tries to remount from the other side and falls off on the same side. In the process, this is what we've done. We've overcorrected. We've gone from one that is far away and different from us to one that is very personable and always the same as us. So every now and then, it's a good thing to remember that just as you cannot understand Jesus, I should say you cannot understand the Old Testament until you read Jesus. I can hear every Old Testament professor right now. You cannot understand the God of the Old Testament until you understand Jesus. You cannot know the God of the Old Testament until you understand Jesus. At least you cannot know him as he wants to be known. For Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son. There is no way to know God in any testament like he wants to be known until we read him in Jesus. Let the church say yes. It's good to remember that the opposite is also true. You cannot understand Jesus until you understand the God of the Old Testament and you realize that everything you see God doing in the Old Testament, Jesus is capable of. You'll lose that. If you forget that, you'll underestimate him. And that leads us to the God who cleanses the temple. Oh, I love this story. Nobody knows exactly why he does it, but what he does is powerful and it's very instructive. And I've been told, by the way, 
to remind those of us in the room that love justice that the other side of that is anger and that our anger is more unrighteous than righteous much of the time. Uh, Just a note to self, and then I'll move into the story. If you find yourself using the cleansing of the temple as a way to justify your own cleansing of other people's temples. A few notes to self about the way Jesus cleansed the temple. One, he was not passive aggressive. He was aggressive. He didn't walk into the temple, smile at the money changers, and then go post mean things about them on Facebook. No, no. Whatever he would have said on Facebook, he said to the money changers. He didn't snipe. He's not a punk. Second, the anger of Jesus is always corrective. Mark says he taught the people saying, my house is the father's house and you've made it a den of thieves. He's not ranting when he says this, he's teaching. The flipping of the tables is an object lesson. It's not a fit of rage. That's significant. In Matthew, it says after Jesus cleansed the temple, the lame and the blind, who, by the way, were not allowed into the temple, came to him in the temple, and he cleansed them. So Jesus' anger, while real, was never the final act. He never intended to work righteousness with anger. Anger was simply the first step in the correcting process. But there was still teaching and still healing to be done after the day he cleansed the temple. Third, while Jesus got angry, he was not an angry person. Uh, Children could still come to him. And some of us clearly are. And while Jesus got angry, he was never angry over principles like justice or fairness or holiness. He got angry when people got hurt. It was always people that Jesus was defending. Never the truth. You don't need to defend the truth. Truth will defend itself. You stand for the truth, because in the end, only the truth will stand. But you don't need to defend it. It's there. It is its own judge. Are we done with that little bypass? Can I get to the story? Without reenacting it with by tipping something over up here. You need to remember that the temple was the place where um, God met people. Let me say it differently. There was no way for God to get into this world except through the temple. So if God wanted to access this world, he had to go through the temple. And if you wanted to get to God, you had to go through the temple. It was like a portal in between heaven and earth where God and people connected. The second thing you should know is that the money changers were an essential part of the temple process. 
there's some belief that they were cheating people in the exchange of money. And while that's a wonderful theory to preach on, we don't know for sure if it's true. What we know is that money changers played an important part. One was to help the poor find a way to sacrifice. They didn't have animals of their own, and so for a cheap price, they could buy doves, and then those doves in the temple could be part of their sacrifice. And the other thing is they were able to convert the money from Roman coins that had the insignia of human beings on them into Tyrian coins that could actually be used to pay temple tithes. And so when we think about money changers, we must not necessarily think about people that are gaming the system and predatorial on other people. We must think about people that are surrounded by a religious system and they are an essential part of that system. The system is working and it's working quite well. And therein lies the problem. I see two flaws in what happened before Jesus wiped it out. One is that over time, the money changers had begun to commercialize their religion. They had found a way to monetize sacrifice. You must not think that they were doing this intentionally, but you must think these were unintended consequences of a system that was working quite well. Nobody necessarily had evil intentions. But slowly over time, the system and the structure of Israel's worship had become so perfect and so automatic that it could not recognize the presence when it walked into the temple. This is alarming, people. Remember, the whole thing is built around the presence of God, and the presence of God is walking through the court of the Gentiles, and nobody notices. system, the worship is working. And there comes a time when you can't tweak it anymore. You just have to get hold of something and flip it. And the second problem is that the temple had begun to layer people away from the presence of God. And this was a problem. The temple had a court where the Gentiles could gather, and that's the court where Jesus was in, and that's the court where they were selling the animals. And because they were selling the animals there with droppings and all, the court of the Gentiles was impure and could not be used for worship. But they couldn't go any further in because there was a wall that said, 
If Gentiles move beyond this point, they do so at the pain of death. So there was a court for Gentiles, foreigners, and then there was a court for Jews. But that was only for the women. Inside of that was a court for the Jewish men <laughs> who were a little higher in social strata. And inside of that was a court for the priests. And inside of that was the holy place. And inside of that was the most holy place. In other words, I'm telling you, Israel's worship had begun to get layered where people were stuck outside the walls and they could not get into the presence of God. And the place where they were stuck was getting defiled and nothing was being done to change it. Israel had standards, barriers. There was always in Israel's mind an ethnic difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There was a gender difference between the male and the female. There was an economic difference between the free and the slave. And there was a ritual difference between the priests and the laity. And while the temple celebrated these things, these differences never existed in the mind of God. There were arbitrary distinctions between people preferred and those who were not preferred. If you go as far back as Abraham, which is hundreds of years before the temple, Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, if you're keeping score, he says to Abraham on the day he circumcised his children, I want you to circumcise every child born in your house, comma, and those that you purchased from a foreigner. Did you hear that? Hundreds of years before the temple built walls to keep Gentiles away from Jews, in God's mind, they were already one. And the temple had become layered. And there comes a time when you can no longer play the game. So Jesus would say, it is written, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a living room for Jews. Church, I believe it is time for God to cleanse the temple again. We have commercialized our worship.
We have built a system that glorifies personalities and turns worshipers into consumers. We've used our own experiences as a pretext and packaged these experiences into rituals and liturgies, both contemporary and traditional. We have complained that we cannot find God in a certain style of music because that is not my style until one wonders whether our style is our God. We need to cleanse the temple again. We have attracted crowds and gathered them into opulent buildings customized according to our preferences. But we have not drawn them into the way of Jesus. We have not called them to come and die. Indeed, they are discipled by the media, by the news, by Hollywood, by musicians, by trends and slogans until what is important to us is peculiarly the same thing that's important to everyone else. We do not have other values. We do not have other agendas. We are not asking other questions. Our views about money or war or sex or love or marriage are exactly the same views as those in the world. It is time for God to cleanse the temple again. We have created a series of barriers, both real and palpable, but invisible, that prohibit all people from coming to the Lord. Like the temple, it's not that we've forbidden people of different color and ethnicities. We haven't forbidden women. We've not forbidden the lame, the blind, the poor, the less educated but they can't get all the way in. They gotta stay outside in their place. So it's time for God to cleanse the temple again. We have worried and fretted over self-preservation. We've asked, how do we stay alive? How do we stay viable? How do we protect ourselves against the creeping darkness that pervades our society? After all, Steve, remember what the Romans did to the Christians? But we have forgotten that God will build his church. We have not been fearless enough. We have not been steadfast enough. We have not been abounding in the Lord. Remember what the Christians did to Rome. It is time for God to cleanse the temple again. And what temple should he cleanse? Well, the Bible says your body. Amen. Is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Never forget that. Whatever you want God to do to the church. Starts. With you or leave the church alone.
we have worshiped one thing with our mouths and done other things with our bodies and with our money. We have sometimes been hard and critical toward people holding them to high standards that we ourselves do not always keep. We have sat in the temple in the presence of God and honored him with our lips, and yet our hearts are far from him. It is time for God to cleanse this temple. We have talked a lot, a lot about social justice, and we have very high standards for the church until we've become critical of it. But we have not, perhaps, been sensitive to the ways in which we ourselves have kept people out. We have not opened up our circles and small groups. We've not heard their criticism. We've not offered our own money to help the poor. We've not treated the people right in front of us with the same kindness we want for those on the margins. It's time for God to cleanse this temple. 1961, year before he died, Somebody asked Tozer to come to a room full of preachers and address them. They never should have done that. Somewhere in the middle of his sermon on how worship was the missing jewel of the church, Tozer said something like this. I've been to all kinds of churches. I've been to dull ones and dry ones and elegant ones too, but the churches where I have been that made the biggest difference in my life are those that had another higher view of God. When they spoke of him, it's as if another tone came to their voice altogether. Said Tozer, I believe that we need a vision of God that makes us fall down and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is full of his glory. We need a vision, not that makes us feel more worthy, but makes us feel more unworthy, so that afterward we might be more worthy. Not one that says we're better than we think, but one that says we're worse than we think. On the way to being better than we'd hoped, we need a higher vision of God.